get us started today. I, I'm very grateful that those of you that have been in the genealogy class or other classes are with us today. Um, we've been talking about theology and architecture and because um, you're just joining today and Eric gave me a little heads up that you might be joining us, I'm just going to do a very brief review and I'm not going to do justice to the review part because we're going to go so very fast. But I'd like you to know that the thesis of the class is that architecture is always a reflection of our theology, even in the churches of Christ. How many of you grew up in a Payton Brothers Church of Christ building? Okay, so um, very briefly, we've always thought the baptistry was the focal point because it was central to our theology of how we become in relationship with God. The preaching of the Word was always central. and the fellowship um, and the priesthood of all male believers <laughs> because the males were the only one that could wait table. Um, we started with um, how God, <clears throat> how architecture was an expression of our worship towards God when we talked about Herod's temple. And this is um, a three-quarters model in Jerusalem at the uh, museum. Um, this is the actual coin that gives us an idea of what the, fa the facade would look like. Um, but we talked about how that there were literally dividing walls and that the Gentiles were only allowed on those sides of the dividing walls. And we also talked about this little 20 uh, by 10 space for the women, um, 200 square feet for the women worshipers, smaller than this, this, uh, this classroom. And we talked about how that after the resurrection, um, the <coughs> disciples worshiped under these porticos um, when, they, when the first church, when the church first started. But that with persecution, uh, they went from the porticos to the homes and how that the the um could somebody snag that door for me thank you how that it was so wonderful that this new wine was put into new wineskins in the home because the in the home the woman had complete freedom and liberty and that she did not have outside the home that she was beca she became a full participant in worship and that it was typical for a woman to be able to pray and prophesy as long as she had her hair head covered, but that she was able to participate <clears throat> in a way that she had not been able to do at synagogues, for example. And then, <clears throat> then as the, the church spread throughout the Roman Empire, that this became a source, a place of Jewish and Romans coming together which of course they couldn't do because of the dividing wall in the temple, that it became a place for slaves and free to worship together, and that men and women were able to worship together in these Roman homes. Uh, we talked about how that during the persecution of the church in the first century, that um, occasionally they had to go underground, and so the catacombs became 
not so much a place of worship, although they did have places where they could um, take the Lord's Supper together, but primarily the catacombs were a place for these people to be, express their theology that they believed in the resurrection of the body. That the general <coughs> practice of Rome, Romans at the time, was to cremate their bodies. And so this was a departure from what was typical. And so the, um, the catacombs were built so that the bodies were stacked on top of each other. And we began to see the very first motifs come into um, being. For example, the chi and the rho, which are the first two Greek letters in Christos. Uh, we saw that images became to come forth of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, which gives us a glimpse into the theology and how they were perceiving uh, Jesus the Christ. Um, we saw, uh, this is at another one, um, Jesus again as the Good Shepherd, and that the loaves and the fish became a, a powerful symbol um, of Christianity and how that if you were in an unsafe social setting but you kind of had a feeling that maybe the person you were talking to was a Christian but you weren't real sure that you could just casually do this and if the person casually did this the the arches intersected and became the symbol of the fish and so it was an insider's way of identifying yourself as a Christian without having to be arrested. Um, this is the very first appearance of a bearded Jesus, um, which was very unusual because the Roman world, of course, was clean-shaven. Uh, another powerful symbol was Jonah and the great fish because Jesus had said, uh, bury me and in three days I will rise as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, um, so I will, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. And so this um, became a place where uh, you put the oil here, and it would run through here, and you would light it, and then you could hold it and walk through the catacombs with a modicum of light. And how that, uh, in the catacombs, if it if the symbol that sealed it was an arch, that that meant that that person had been martyred and not just a, a natural death. And that the, the sign of the fish was uh, symbolized here as was the anchor. The anchor was a sign, symbol of um, martyrdom. Uh, St. Clement of Rome uh, was tied to an anchor and drowned. Um, and so it, it too became a symbol of Christianity in that uh, Christ is our anchor of our hope. Um, after years of persecution, years and years of perse persecution, in 312, uh, Constantine was about to go to war with his brother-in-law and he saw a vision in the sky of the high and the row, and um, he went into battle with the Kai and the row 
emblazoned on the shields of his Roman soldiers. And he was the one that first legalized Christianity. Up to this point, absolutely no buildings had been built for the worship of Jesus. He took a very uh, typical uh, basilica, which is a civic building, where you could uh, meet and have discussions. You could even make judgments. Um, and he gave the basilica to, like the basilica of Maxentius, his brother-in-law that he was building. He gave that building to the Christians for their worship. And he even <coughs> built a basilica, which he called the Basilica of St. Peter. And this is an etching of the original. Of course, it has been torn down. And the current one is going to be a kickback of what we're going to talk about today. Um, this is the interior section uh, this, the Basilica of St. Peter that was built in uh, th from 320 to 330. And <clears throat> um, it is the little symbol that you see on the sign outside in the, um, in the hallway. <clears throat> At the apse of the, um, um, of the Basilica, we see that the decor um, of, of the apse was still imagining Jesus as the um, Good Shepherd. So this is still an indication of where their head was at. Architecture under Constantine <clears throat> continues um, with Roman scale and spatial variety, but it's really important that that you know that they continued using Roman architecture, Roman capitals, uh, Roman arches, groins, and so forth. Um, but the plan was either a Latin cross or a Greek cross. And Constantine was fascinated with all things Greek, so when he moved the capital from Rome to Byzantium and renamed it Constantinople, he went with the Greek cross symbol because he was so fascinated with all things Greek. Uh, the interiors of those walls were richly decorated with paintings and mosaics, colors of red, gold, green, and blue, and shimmering wall mosaics. Now, you can, you can tell that he's made a shift to luxury, luxury power, the bling. Okay, um, we introduced that in the kingdom of God, um, Jesus models upside down leadership. That he uses all of his energy and all of his resources to uphold those of his followers so that they can use all of their energy and resources to uphold their followers so that they can in turn use all their energy and resources. So you get an exponential growth model in the kingdom of God. Um, it is not hierar hierarchical. Um, on the other hand, when Constantine legalizes Christianity, he writes the kingdom of God so that it becomes hierarchical and he fashions the church as he fashioned the Roman government. And he established um, the Bishop of Rome, which was 
the Pope, and then you have his cardinals, then you have the bishops, I'm sorry, the archbishops, and then the bishops, priests, and the monastery, then um, monks. So, uh, and then of course, <laughs> way down on the bottom are the lay people. Now, the, the way that kingdom works is that those on the bottom use all their energy and resources to make the next level up look good. So that these guys can use all their energy and resources to make um, the bishops look good. And the bishops use all of their energy and resources to make the archbishops look good. And the archbishops and cardinals use all their energy and resources to make Pope look good. Now, uh, we have a current Pope who has refuted that, but um, in any case, this was the direction that the church went in for many, many years. As a matter of fact, when, when the, when the um, Christians were worshiping in the catacombs or burying their dead in the catacombs, um, it was largely women um, who were the patrons of the church, and it was largely women of wealth who um, supported missionaries to go out from Rome to other places. And as a result um, of Constantine coming onto the scene, um, very literally, most of the names of the women who were patrons of the church, their names were completely eliminated from the, the church record. Um, oh, I've got this fabulous t picture that's supposed to be right there. <laughs> it's a, a picture of, um, that Constantine had done of Jesus as the ruler with his head on the neck of one of the uh, emperors. And so he went from Jesus as good shepherd to Jesus as magnificent ruler. And so you see a shift in the theology. Now, unfortunately, Rome falls, uh, fell to the Visigoths in 410 and was sacked by the Vandals in 455. And so the light of learning is extinguished in, in Europe. It was saved by Gregory the Great in the 6th century. Uh, he established monasteries like this one in Monte Cassino in 529. Um, the monks were able to study the texts and uh, and copy the texts. They they also knew about architecture, mathematics, uh, medicine, and they did manual labor. And with the the monasteries became they almost look like fortresses, don't they? They borrowed the Romanesque art, the Roman arch, and <coughs> so. Um, Art historians looking backwards called this phase Romanesque because of the Roman arches. But they really did look like fortresses. And they were communities unto themselves. They had a cloister, which was um, a beautiful walkway where the priests or the monks could walk and contemplate, a dormitory for them to live in, a refectory for them to eat in, a kitchen guest houses, schools, libraries, barns, stables, and workshops. Was Gregory the Great, was he the Pope at the time? Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. 
Um, this is an example we're going to talk a little bit about the role that was played in Germany in Christianity. So I thought it would be interesting to see the Palatine Palace Chapel that Charlemagne built because you can see once again that it has these Roman arches and so it's considered Romanesque. But you can see how heavy it is and how it's built like a fortress. This is an interior shot of the same. Now Romanesque architecture um, became uh, uh, kind of a lot of churches were built in this period um, to accompany and accommodate the uh, crusaders and the pilgrims. Now there were crusades um, to, from Europe to uh, free Jerusalem from the Muslims. And unfortunately, this is one of the darkest periods of Christian history. Um, like I, I said, I was not going to do justice, but we'll go forward. Romanesque churches were filled with sculptured panels and columned capitals telling biblical stories for the benefit of the illiterate people. They would show the rewards of virtue and the punishment of wrongdoing. For example, this is the ceiling uh, in the, the uh, baptistry in Florence, Italy. And you can see God is sitting in, in judgment here. Um, take a look at how graphic the, um, the punishment for evil doing is. Um, the rewards look pretty good, but, <laughs> but, um, but during this time of church history, uh, the church really gained control over the morals of people by trying to show them what the punishments would be. Um, this is where we begin to see portals. Uh, portals are fancy names for doors. And because there were so many pilgrims that were uh, going to, to uh, places that had reliquaries, relics, um, like for example, Helen Constantine's um, mom went to Jerusalem and felt like she had found the original cross and um, and so she built a, a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that um, commemorates that and the, the place that she thinks uh, Jesus was uh, crucified on. Now, I mean, buried in. Um, and during this age, uh, if, you if you felt like you had something that was miraculous, you would build a church over it, and then people would come to see it, and they would bring money with them, and so forth. Um, really... <laughs> glancing over so much of this, but we showed that there were three portals on the west wall of every church that was built. Another thing that was interesting about this particular period of, of history is that you had three layers of, um, or three floors that went up in any kind of a church, and that the, this one was called the nave arcade, this one was called the Triforium, or gallery, and this one was called the Clear Story. So, buildings soared. 
And because in the Romanesque times, uh, because of uh, just the mechanical developments, these were very thick walls and very tiny windows. <laughs> and because it was built almost like a fortress on top of each other. But mechanical and um, engineering allowed uh, the next sweep of history to go towards lancet arches, which supported more weight than the Romanesque arch did. And so they were able to build taller, bigger windows with lighter weight walls. And this allowed them to do to stack, once again, the nave, the, uh, the gallery, and the clear story so that when you walk into a Gothic element, your, your eyes sweep up. The, um, the themes for these Gothic structures were um, of paradise. And they wanted to recreate what, or to uh, simulate what they thought a new heaven and a new earth would be like. Feudalism was so oppressive during this time, and the people were so impoverished that, um, and, and the church was their communal place of connecting with God. So the beauty of the, the Gothic churches is unmatched. The, um, the sweeping stained glass windows and the amount of light that comes into the space gives it a mystical feeling. And when you walk, walk in, your eyes automatically just soar to the heavens. And you feel like you're in the presence of not only beauty, but of a mystical God who is greater than you can absorb. Okay? This is during the 11, it's basically the 11th to 12th century that this is happening. It starts in France and it radiates throughout, um, throughout Europe. For example, this is um, the inside of the Cologne Cathedral in Germany. Since we're doing a German theme today, I thought I'd show you a German Gothic. So, um, as you can see, <laughs> There's no way to get the top and the floor in one in one picture, but you can see that when you walk in, your eyes are just directed to the grandeur and the glory of God, filled with light. Um, this is the exterior of that building, and you can see uh, you can't even see the people. People will be about that tall, so. Everything is grand, everything is going up, and even all the decorations, what we call little crockets on the, uh, that embellish all of the edges, are um, stylistic elements that you would find in nature. So it's, it's the new heavens, a new earth. Gone are all of the classical Greco and Roman forms of architecture. This is a completely new and unique form. Now, uh, 
in about 11, from 1152 <coughs> to 1226, St. Francis of Assisi uh, began to undermine the church as a C, okay. Um, he humanized religion and emphasized the beauty of the natural world. And in fact, two centuries later, in 1304 to 1374, <coughs> Petrarch um, collected ancient Greek manuscripts. And the scholars that studied these ancient manuscripts were known as humanists. And they set the stage for what uh, 19th century art scholars named the Renaissance. So the Renaissance, um, because of the secular studies that Petrarch had done of Greek texts, uh, classical civilization, and by that I mean Greece and Rome, classical civilization begins to be idealized over the conditions that people in uh, fiefdom began to find themselves under. So the ancient focus was on the individual, on nature, and on the God that could be known, and that superseded the medieval focus on the unknowable and ecclesiastical mystery. And the rediscovery of the Greek language led to a thirst for sola scriptura, scripture only. Okay, so the, the name was, or the mantra at that time was sola scriptura, only scripture, scriptura sola, uh, scripture, uh, wait, only scripture, scripture only, okay? Uh, also, the merchant class began to replace fiefdom. So life begins to be, and the social order begins to change during this time. So, as a reflection of this new understanding that, that God is a knowable God, not an unknowable entity, we begin to see buildings that go from a vertical thrust to a very horizontal thrust. Gone are the two stories, and you, you see flat roofs, uh, you see portals of light, you still have the nave and the aisles and chapels along the aisles, but things have gotten much simpler. And if you'll notice, they go back to Greek architectural forms and Greek capitals. Uh, and I'm sorry, <laughs> Roman arches and Greco-Roman capitals. Um, the, uh, they were influenced very much by Greco-Roman ideals. Does that rem remind you of the, the inception of, of uh, the United States of America? We were very taken with the ideas of democracy, human determination, and human perfection, and earthbound gods. Uh, so we moved from upward vertical to downward horizontal and these, re these reintroduction of all these elements. So we go from, or we go to, to Renaissance forms from medieval forms. This is the, the church in Florence 
the Duomo. So you can see the arches that point upward, and then if you go back, you can see that everything is now on a horizontal plane. Now, um, last week we got to the Great Reformation, and this was so named in the 17th century, not, this was like two centuries later, they looked back on the 15th century and said, this was the time where the church was reforming. And a lot of it had to do with this mantra, solely scripture, scripture only. And because for so long the church had been oppressive, uh, hierarchical, and had levied so much pressure on, on the people. Uh, so this emphasis on literacy led to wanting to read the text for yourself. And it was extremely expensive to have someone copy um, a copy of the, the text from Latin or from Greek. What really supercharged the Great Reformation was Gutenberg when he developed the Gutenberg Press in 1439. And in 1445, for the first time, he was able to mass produce copies of primarily the Latin uh, text of the Bible. And so it became possible, if you were wealthy enough, it became possible for you to buy a copy of the scriptures. Now what would that do to the church? Their authority was very threatened. Um, another challenge that they had from 1378 to 1417, they had three popes. They had one in Avignon in Paris, and they had two in Rome that were competing politically with each other. It wasn't a religious movement. It was very political. It was a, a quest for power. And this undermined the authority of the church because people said, well, who has the authority? Um, the world was challenged that their previous understanding from Scripture that the world was not flat. Christopher Columbus <coughs> proved that in 1492. And the theories of Copernicus that the sun was the center of the universe, not the earth, which he was excommunicated for, as was Galileo, um, these were challenged. Uh, these were challenges to the church and to the church's um, interpretation of scripture. So these were some really, like, like earthquake things going on during this period of time. In Germany, since we're going to be looking at Germany today, Martin Luther hung the Ninety-Five Thesis <coughs> on the Wittenberg. <laughs> um, in the doors in 1517. And this was a challenge to the church, not to become a, a separate church, but to reform the church, to do away with indulgences, for example. Um, he felt like the church was not an institution, that people were the institution, uh, were the church, not the institution 
of the church. He also taught that the church was not a building. Um, that you didn't, when, when Clement, Clement said go to church, he wasn't talking about going to an edifice because there were no edifices when he wrote. He was talking about going to meet with the people, the church. And he reinstitutes that and says, you know, we're not going to church is not going to a building. We're going to be with people of God. Um, he instituted or challenged the Roman Catholic hierarchy by saying the church um, is a priesthood of all believers and that you can read the text for yourself and you can interpret it for yourself. Um, so how does that affect the, the buildings that they constructed? For one thing, they had these beautiful buildings, so what they did in the Lutheran church was they stripped the buildings of the Madonnas and um, they stripped um, Christ crucified on the cross. They took him off the cross. He's no longer there. So they had crosses, but Jesus wasn't tortured and, and sitting there. Um, one of the big things was that they put the pulpit in front of the altar um, because the proclamation of the word was superseding the authority of the church. Sola Scriptura, Scriptura Sola. So the pulpit replaces the altar as the dominant center of, of the building and resurrection becomes central so Christ comes off the the cross and buildings were stripped of images and congregational music was instituted. That was another thing. Gone are the choir stalls of the Roman Catholic churches. I got through that so fast. I did not expect to. It's, is it really 1041 and we get out at 1045? I did it. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, so next week we're going to look at um, what the Reformation looked like in England and how that the translation of Scripture came from um, the uh, Latin and Greek and how it came to be translated so that people could read it in the English vernacular. Um, and this was a, a very painful very painful period in church history but we are the beneficiaries of that struggle and I'm very excited to share that with you um, then the next week we're going to talk about how that the Catholic the Roman Catholic Church pushed back against Protestantism and built these phenomenal grand edifices like St. Peter's in Rome um, as a means of saying we're in, we're in power, we are the authority. And we call these structures Baroque structures. So, we, so that will be the progression for the next two weeks. And I sure hope that you'll be with me. Do you guys, I, I've gone through this so fast. Do you guys have any questions for me? Okay. As far as the English, yes. did they use the German translation 
Good question. Yeah. Um, they didn't have a German translation. They had it in Gutenberg printed it in the Latin Vulgate. So at some point um, in time, and I can't remember now um, when this was, but they translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, and they also did it with the Old Testament. So you could read the Old and the New in Latin, which was the language of the church. So uh, Gutenberg's Bible was, was not in English or in German. It was in Latin. Yeah. And spoiler alert, if you don't want to know this, go, nah, nah. Um, people lost their lives for translating it into German and um, French and English. It was a terrible period. We, sometimes if you look back at Christianity, you can just really like, oh, it's just cringe. Um, but one of the things that we want to see is that what people believed about God always manifested itself in some way, um, whether ill-conceived or not, but that, um, that God is always present in beauty and that the expressions, <clears throat> whether it was for the illiterate people or even for those of us now, that the expressions of beauty are always, <laughs> despite what, um, what might have been in the hearts and minds of people, they, they do draw us to God. You didn't mention so many other churches Yes. How did that change over? You know, we went through a number of periods. And That's a good question. Of churches I've been in, they still even into the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Over, yes. But they, they all had the catacombs or the common clothes. Right, right, right. The um, I think one of the the things that came to my mind when you asked me your question was St. Paul's and even Westminster Abbey, how that they would. Bury kings and um, Chaucer, in Chaucer, important people like um, we got to live in Italy when Randy was teaching um, at Pepperdine. We we lived with our students there for a semester, and so we got to see where Michelangelo was buried, Galileo, and people, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, people like that, are always buried in the churches. And it, it fell out of favor with uh, Protestantism. Not so much with the Anglican Church, the Church of England, but, um, but with what once Puritans and separatists became, became veered away from these grand edifices to simple edifices, um, we began burying people in the yard in next, the yard next to, to it. Them. And the difference between a cemetery and a graveyard is what? The graveyard is on hallowed ground, what they call holy ground, and a cemetery is not. Good question. What makes it hallowed? Um, that it belongs to the church and that they were in full communion 
with the church where they worshiped at. That they, they had lived a godly life instead of a profligate life. Churches, I mean, I think there's a one in Columbia where they have the graveyard next to the church. It's old. It's old, yeah. Yeah, so I mean. Okay, one of my favorites. Yeah, one of my favorites is the Trinity Church in um, New York City. The city has grown up around it, so it's just you know, and it was the church that were the first responders at 9/11 were there, but um, when you go to that church. Uh, you can see where <laughs> Alexander Hamilton and his wife and his um, his sweetheart, her sister, are all buried, and um, um, along with other great Americans. But I just think it's kind of interesting that they were buried on that ground. So it's very interesting. Most churches now don't have enough ground. No. <laughs> and then that, that fell out of favor. Most of us are buried in cemeteries. Does so. that have to do with people moving away, like doing that yes. and people would have lived in the same place? Oh yeah, you would have versus. been born and buried in the same community. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay, this has been fun for me. I hope you'll be back next week. Thank you.